0: With me to the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark and Chapter 1, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will consider verses 1 through 3 uh, this evening as we uh, come into our second week uh, in this wonderful Gospel. Uh, Mark 1, 1 through 3. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come before you this evening, we ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would hear your word, but not just hear it by your grace to believe it and to respond to it by faith, that we would hold fast to Christ, our only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In Matthew chapter 16, we have a question that is posed to the disciples from Jesus Christ, Matthew 16 and verse 13, It says that when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's a, an important question. It's the most important question uh, in the world today. It's more important than the question of who will be our next president. It's more important than the question of our economic state and our country. It's more important than than anything, really, this question of who is Jesus Christ? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And we see that, uh, as in our day, in the first century, there was a lot of confusion about this, about who Jesus was. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's interesting that there are all these views about who Jesus was. Literally, people in the crowds were saying that this was John the Baptist come back from the dead, or this was Jeremiah come back from the dead, or one of the prophets, believing all kinds of things about Jesus except for the truth about Jesus. Peter, of course, who was a kind of spokesman for the disciples, uh, I am a guest to the chagrin of many of the disciples, he was always opening his mouth, oftentimes putting his foot in his mouth as well. But he replied, and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good answer, Peter. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and i tell you you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the christ and then jesus you know foretells his his death And Peter, who was just uh, the star pupil, uh, becomes one who basically rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to go do what his father sent him to earth to do. And so he goes from being the one upon whom, namely his confession uh, that Christ will build his church upon, to get behind me Satan, Jesus says to him. But this question of, of who is Jesus is a very important one, and as we come to the Gospel of Mark, this is one of the big questions we will be seeking to answer, and, and as it concerns our own witness in Mount Pleasant, uh, in our uh, wider community of Charleston and other parts of the country, as some of you will uh, inevitably get jobs other places and, 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 and move away, particularly young families, young couples who finish school. That wherever you go, you are a witness of Christ, and we must have an answer, and we must be willing to to lovingly and warmly confront people to say, who do you think Jesus is? And the answer cannot be, well, I think he's this person, or I think he's that person, because that is just conjecture and it's opinion. What we have before us is the gospel of Mark the truth about who Jesus Christ was and and is. And so this is why we come to this gospel. This is why we want to unpack this gospel over the next uh, months and and perhaps a couple of years uh, to answer this question, who is Jesus? And it's not who is Jesus for me. It's who is Jesus. Uh, You notice that we are not in a big circle tonight. Asking the question, well, who do you think Jesus is? Oh, okay. Well, who do you think Jesus is? What is Jesus for you? That is a modern kind of therapeutic approach to religion. What we want to come to tonight is the truth about who Christ is. And we have the answer here in Mark 1, 1 through 3. Not a whole lot different than Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, as we think about this, 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 this foundation of, of the gospel of Mark, the, the opening verses, uh, we, we want to think of a couple of things that are important. And one of them is that here we have the fullness of time. Paul uh, used these words in Galatians 4 that when Christ was born, he was born in the fullness of time. All of redemptive history was anticipating this three-year public ministry of jesus christ and when we think about our own lives today in the 21st century we look back to this age as the fullness of time this three-year public ministry where christ fulfilled his father's purpose of redemption which was also his purpose but this was the fullness of time in the history of redemption You remember after the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom of Judah had been devastated by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Because of their gross idolatry and sin, God mercifully opened up a way for his covenant people to return to Jerusalem and get reestablished, building a wall and rebuilding the temple. The people of God, however... Who had regained this territory, this, this area, and had built this wall and had built, rebuilt the temple, they were many of the older members who remembered the former temple were were saddened. They wept. For they remembered the former glory of Solomon's temple. The new one could not even compare. They had no king, and they were constantly under the rule of successive nations. You know the history. Babylon and Persia, reigning from 586 to 331 B.C. Then there was Greece and Alexander the Great, 331 to 134 B.C. And then, of course, we have Rome. We have Rome, 63 B.C. and forward. And, and we must note as well that from the time of Malachi's ministry in 400 B.C., The prophetic word was silent until, that is, John the Baptist arrived on the scene, proclaiming that the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of God's covenant promises had come down from heaven to accomplish salvation for his people. And what we must keep in mind as we begin this study of Mark is that God's plan of redemption was not one in which he was sort of, as we do oftentimes, flying by the seat of his pants, on the contrary, God's purpose to save sinners through His Son was established, as we were reminded this morning, from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And so as we look at this great span of time from the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden until now, which is, according to many, uh, a little over 6,000 years, we know that God is working all things according to his plan, giving us great confidence that nothing can thwart his holy decree to save his people from their sins. Again, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And the most important part of this, all things, is His work of redemption. What has been unfolding in this glorious plan of redemption are these successive covenants, God's covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David over the span of about 3,000 years. We're not going to take time to unpack all of this, but... Rest assured that all of these covenants were fulfilled in the person of Christ. All, 2 Corinthians one twenty says, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. All of this background, all of this background, you see, would have been on Mark's mind when he commenced his gospel of Mark. Christ's public ministry did not begin in a vacuum. The ministry of Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of the historically and divinely ordained plan of God, a plan that was decreed before time, set forth through types and shadows like the ones we read in our reading in Exodus 30, through many generations, covenants, sacrifices, prophecies, promises. All of this, of course, was fulfilled by Jesus So as Mark began writing his gospel sometime between 60 and 70 A.D., it was against this backdrop that he wrote. To Mark, Jesus was not just another prophet or another religious leader. He was the Messiah, the promised one, the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, the one who left his throne above and became a man without ceasing to be God, the one who would bring salvation to a world lost in Sin, and oh, how the world is lost in sin. It's with this in mind that Mark commences his gospel proclamation. You see, this gospel, Mark understood as a royal declaration of the good news proclaimed. In verse 1, you'll notice Paul uses the word gospel to describe what is to proceed. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This word gospel or evangelion in Greek has interesting roots. It was not a word coined by the early Christians. Christians didn't come up with this word. It was a word that had significance even within the culture that the Jews and the early Christians were in. Among the Romans, the word gospel meant joyful tidings and was associated with the celebration of the emperor's birthday. And because the emperor was considered to be a god in Roman culture, this was to be an important celebration for everyone in the Roman Empire. And when the news of the festivals was proclaimed or publicized, these were called evangels or gospels. There was actually a calendar inscription found in Asia Minor from about 9 BC that says of the emperor Octavian, Augustus, quote, This is from an inscription from from 9 B.C. Quote, the birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on his account. Isn't it interesting how similar this inscription is to Mark's introduction? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Could it be that Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit and using a play on words, introduced his gospel by making a bold and clear statement to the Roman Christians that the real glad tidings, the true gospel, is not the celebration of the Roman emperor who deems himself a god along with the rest of Rome, but the proclamation of Jesus Christ who, unlike Octavian, is God in the flesh. Mark demonstrates to the Roman world that in the inauguration of Christ's public ministry, a new age has begun. You know, it is interesting when we see some of the uh, ways that the early Christians spoke about Christ, it was a confrontational declaration. You know, the Roman emperors and the Roman people who loved their empire, they weren't so concerned for Christians to worship Jesus What they were concerned about is when they didn't worship Caesar or when they didn't worship Augustus, when they did not worship the idols of their culture. Add Jesus, that's fine. But when the Christians had one God and one Savior and one King and would not bow down to the idols of the culture, that's when the problem began. That's when persecution would commence. That's when Christians would be fed to the lions and the colosseum the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of god look at the words now beginning in verse 1 mark 1:1 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ this is the greek word arche. And it's interesting when we look at the different gospels and how they each begin uh, the book of matthew begins with a genealogy of of christ uh, and it's, it begins with Abraham. It appeals to the Jews. Uh, Luke 3, 23-38, there's a genealogy of Christ which begins with whom? With Adam. This appeals universally and especially to the Gentiles. In John 1-1, the other gospel, uh, it says that uh, the word was with God. And so this gospel begins even before time. And, and then there's Mark. He begins his gospel with the public ministry of John the Baptist, the messenger who would be the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord, prepare the way. And this introduction by Mark, again, Mark is the, the fast paced gospel. Uh, Mark is the gospel where everything is quick, fast-paced, action-filled. He begins straight away with the the ministry of John the Baptist. And right away, right away it states who Jesus is. You don't have to to wonder. You don't have to think, well, when when is this coming when, when we find out who this Jesus is? It's right here at the beginning. He says Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ is king, the king of kings. And so here we have a wonderful summary. We're going to consider, God willing, next week uh, or the week after uh, because uh, O. Palmer Robertson is going to be here next week to preach in our evening service. And I hope you'll be blessed uh, by that. Uh, But the week after, God willing, uh, we'll be continuing in this uh, section. And we're going to look at John the Baptist's ministry uh, more closely Uh, But here we have a summary of who Jesus is from the very outset of Mark's gospel. Let's think for a moment about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Notice that Mark doesn't just call his Savior Jesus, but Jesus Christ. Uh, The word Christ, of course, in the Greek language, uh, Christos, is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means anointed one. Christ was the anointed one, and we know that when Christ began his his ministry in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, Christ reads from Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. What good news? Jesus did not come to save the righteous. May I say that again? Jesus did not come to save the righteous, those who think that they are okay on their own, with their own works, with their own status, with their own background, that they're, they're fine. Oh, yeah, I'll take Jesus, but, you know, I'm, I'm actually, deep down inside, I think I'm pretty good on my own. Don't really want to confess it. I don't want to talk about my sin. That's private. That's my own business. Don't bother me with that. It's not that bad anyway. You should see what my neighbor does. Everything is a shift, a blame shift, a a pointing, a a reluctance to be vulnerable, to be open and naked before God who is holy. Christ didn't come to save those kind of people, as it were. He came to save those who recognize their sin who recognize their brokenness, who recognize their need for a Savior, the poor, the the brokenhearted, the captives, the, the ones who are bound, if not physically bound up in their hearts, perhaps emotionally, perhaps psychologically. Christ came to save sinners. Paul declared that he was the chief. That didn't mean that Paul understood himself to be a person who was continuing in the same kinds of patterns of awful sin and idolatry as those who were still continuing in awful sin and idolatry. But the closer he came to Christ and the holier, holier he became, the more he recognized the depths and the, and the layers of his own sin. You know, I was, we were out to dinner with a, a family from the church this week, and we were just having fellowship, and we were talking about one point that, that really hits home when we think about sin. You know, a lot of times we think about sin in terms of those big sins, those great sins, or, or, or even, even just the sins of, of, of commission, crossing uh, the line and transgressing, as it were. But we don't think a lot about the sins of omission. If you want to think for a moment about how sinful we really are, think about all the things that we fail to do every single day, every moment. In fact, think about this. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's have a show of hands of anybody who for one second has done that ever and their entire life perfectly. You see, not for one second have we ever loved God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength or loved our neighbor as ourselves in the way that we ought. In that sense, we are failing every day to meet the standard of God's righteousness. We are so far from it. It's like saying, "Hey, I'm going to swim to the south of England." All right, let's go. You know, there may be a few people that get a little farther than others, but every single one of us will drown or get eaten by sharks or whatever. We'll never make it. This shows the greatness of our sin and the greatness of God's grace. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with the greatness of God's grace. It's so rich, it's so big, it's so full, it's so free. We think it just can't be real. I've never known this from anyone in my life. Instructors, coaches, parents. They've always expected so much. There's always performance. There's always some goal. There's some, always some standard I have to meet. And I, I, I'm just always hearing about that. And I just, It's hard for me to understand or believe that God loves me as I am a sinner in Christ. And the reason he loves you Dear one, is because Christ has met the standard. Because he has paid for your sin. Because you're in him. Because you're in him, you are beloved of God. And he's indwelt you with his spirit so that you could grow and be sanctified and become more like Christ day after day. That is the preciousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can, we can have this sort of right theology and really miss the richness of God's grace. You know, I my dad's with the Lord now, died about 11 years ago. Uh, my mom is about to turn 80, now fighting breast cancer. I cannot remember one day in my 52 years. Yep, I'm 52. I know you thought I was 39, but... In my 52 years, I can't remember one day where I woke up and thought, you know, my parents are just going to disown me. My parents are just going to throw me out. My parents aren't going to love me anymore. Not one day. Now, have they been upset with me for good reason? Oh, yeah. Did I get in some trouble in high school and college? Oh, yes. But never once. Never once did I sense that they were going to throw me out. You know, I believe, as those who are in Christ, not with some false profession, not with some, oh yeah, I got my fire insurance, I'm going to live like the devil, and you know, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, we make a great team. Not that attitude. I'm talking about you love Christ because he first loved you, and you trust him, and you have faith in him. That that is intended to give you the kind of assurance and confidence and security in the love of God that then propels you to want to live a godly life and to love other people to not size up people and compare yourself to others and live in fear and live in guilt like that that is so so far from the way Christians are called to live in the gospel amen we live out of thankfulness and love because we have been so loved, so richly forgiven, shown such amazing mercy. And how do we want to respond to that? With love. And when we fail, when we sin, we confess that sin and those failures. And we move forward in the grace of God. But this this is, this is is the calling upon us. This is the joy that we have as God's people and christ has called the brokenhearted he's called the captives he's called those who are bound and these are the words that jesus read in the synagogue in nazareth today this scripture has been fulfilled and you're hearing messiah has come man can you imagine being there that day Amazing, Jesus was and is the chosen one, the one sent by god and 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 fully qualified as the, the Son of God to carry out this mission that he He was given and so mark 's Gospel begins with a clear presentation of Jesus as the Messiah of God, the anointed one, the christ but that 's not all it also says that Jesus is the Son of god mark 's Christology or his doctrine of Christ exhibits an exalted view of the Savior, not just in verse 1, but all throughout this gospel, there is an emphasis upon Jesus being the true Son of the living God, the eternal Son of God. There are four major figures within Mark's gospel that reveal to us that Jesus is the Son of God. First of all, uh, the obvious one is God the Father. You remember in Mark 1 and verse 11, We have the baptism of Jesus where God, the Father, says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father declares from heaven that Jesus is his Son. The transfiguration in chapter 9, verse 7. Again, the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. God the Father declares this. The demons declare this. In Mark three eleven and five seven and, and one twenty-four, the demons declare Jesus to be the Son of God, chapter three, verse eleven. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Thirdly, Christ Himself declares this several times. In Mark 14, 61 and 62, it says, quote, Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, of course, a reference to, uh, to uh, Daniel chapter 7. Fourthly, the Roman centurion. You remember in chapter 15 and verse 39 of the Gospel of Mark It says, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so Mark begins his gospel with a declaration of Christ's deity, but throughout the entire gospel, Jesus is is proclaimed as the Son of God by God the Father and by the demons and by Jesus himself and by the Roman centurion who watched him die. In addition to Christ, several times being called the Son of God or the second person of the Holy Trinity, he is given, in verse 3, the most sacred and revered name in all of Scripture. It is here that Mark's view of Christ could not become more exalted. Look with me again at verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, before we unpack this, it's interesting to know that Mark attributes this entire quote to Isaiah when, in fact, verse 2 is a combination of quotes from Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1. It's only verse 3 that comes from Isaiah in chapter 40 and verse 3. We shouldn't be alarmed at this, however, as if it was a mistake on the part of Mark or an error in Scripture. You see, in the rabbinical tradition, these texts had already been combined or fused in order to point to the forerunner of the Messiah. Mark was simply quoting these two verses prior to Isaiah 43, verse 3, in order to give fuller meaning to the text. This messenger, of course, is whom? John the Baptist, John the Baptist. Again, next week, we'll look at verses 4 through 8 and unpack his life and ministry more. But what I want us to set our attention on uh, this evening is verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The first thing we see here is that Jesus is Yahweh. Mark quotes this text from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Not only to convey to his readers that John the Baptist is the one who will sound the alarm that the Messiah has come, but that the Messiah is none other than Yahweh himself, veiled in human flesh. Isaiah 40, verse 3, in the Hebrew text, reads something like this. Voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. You see, John Mark, from the outset, leaves no doubt in the reader's mind as to who Jesus Christ really is. He is not as the Mormons say. He is not as the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Jesus is one substance with the Father and the Spirit, equal in power and glory. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He sustains all things by the word of His power. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Here we see one of the most glorious Christological passages in all of the Bible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Not only are all things created through Him by the Father, but for Him, for His glory. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is no less than the very Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. He is Yahweh, the great I Am, John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was, I am. To deny this truth that Jesus Christ is God is to deny the foundation of the Christian faith. So we've considered Christ as Messiah and Christ as the eternal Son of God. How about Christ as King? Mark commences his gospel in a manner that reminds us of the entrance of royalty onto the scene. Many of you will have watched the royal wedding uh, recently, a wedding, the, an, an, the uh, inauguration, what, the uh, anointing, what is it called? Coronation. Coronation. Thank you so much. The brain is slow sometimes on Sunday evenings. The coronation. Whether it's a coronation or, or, or a wedding, we've seen these great uh, festivals, these wonderful celebrations of, of British uh, history and national life. Now, there are elements of it, uh, especially this last coronation, that uh, can be hard to stomach. And yet, what is impressive uh, is the music. Uh, the trumpets when royalty is entering uh, the Westminster Abbey we've seen these kinds of things before and and it happens all over the world and here we have a kind of royal trumpeter as it were John the Baptist the messenger he will prepare the way he will be the voice crying out in the wilderness And the people of God, it was like a wilderness. No spoken word of God for 400 years from a prophet. Silence. Many would have wondered, has God forsaken us? The Roman Empire has taken control. We are oppressed by them. And we have not had a prophet for 400 years. And yet, here comes the one prophesied of in In the Old Testament, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Prepare the way for the public ministry of the Son of God, the Messiah, our King. Here we get just a glimpse of what happened in Mark chapter 11 when hundreds of people laid down their cloaks upon the ground as Christ made his final entry into Jerusalem. And so Mark's gospel from the very outset makes crystal clear that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, and that He is our King. The question we have to ask tonight, of course, is what do we believe about Christ? We are confronted with this message tonight. It's it's there. This is God's Word. This is uh, the gospel of, of of Mark, written between 60 and 70 A.D., the testimony of, of Christ, who he was, what he did. If he really is the Messiah, chosen and anointed by his Father to redeem this lost and dying world, if Christ really is God, eternally existing with the Father and the Spirit, if Christ really is the King of kings, ruling and reigning, over all the nations of the earth and soon to return in judgment, then how ought we to think about this Savior? If He is these things, how does it affect our lives? Well, for many of you, you will know Him as your Lord and Savior, as your Messiah, as your God, and as your King. Perhaps others will not have this belief, and even tonight there is a call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. As Christians, we want, of course, to live with this transforming knowledge that the divine Messiah King lives with us and within us. He is in our hearts, the hope of glory. And so as we live in this grace, as we live with this knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done, on our behalf, we then respond, as I mentioned earlier, with that heart of, of Christian love and gratitude, which translates into service. And we approach our work and our, our schooling, our education, our marriage, our family life, our parenting, our recreation, our conversation, our money, our, our suffering our friendships, our relationships. If this gospel is true, this, this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and by His grace we believe this, then it does change everything. It doesn't make everything perfect, but it changes our perspective, our outlook, our approach the way we treat one another, the way we serve, the way we raise our children, the way we work. And we never do so perfectly, but we do so growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It does impact everything that we do. And so, dear ones, take comfort. Christ is your Messiah. Christ is your God. And Christ is your King. Meditate on that, and it will change your life. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for these verses. And Father, Father, in the the weariness of a Sunday evening, there is no place that we'd rather be than together, sitting under the preaching of Your Word, knowing that You love us with an everlasting love, reminding us over and over again of the work of Christ for us, the One who is not some emanation from God or or some higher prophet, but but the eternal God, the Son of God, who became flesh without ceasing to be God and accomplished redemption on our behalf. Lord, we put our hope and our trust in him alone. Would you be glorified through our lives as we seek to live by faith in your Son and according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.